this episode of the Duke Basketball Report. Pro- oh my God. <clears throat> the broadcast. It's a broadcast. <laughs> this episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by Bird Campbell, PA, with offices in Florida and Texas. For any legal services for needing Blue Devils, call Bird Campbell, PA. Bird Campbell means business. Hey, Sam, I'm going to leave the broadcast in. <laughs> if you, if you need am, any. This is all in. This is in. Need, when you, you listen, it. this will be in the podcast. <laughs> Hello, Duke fans. And welcome to episode 101 of the We're in a Duke Basketball of, of the Duke Basketball <laughs> Report podcast. It is Tuesday. <laughs> Guys, come on, oh, this is serious. This is the no, greatest open we've this ever done. Best. It is if Tuesday. You guys thought, if you guys thought that episode 100 was just the end of our our being good at this, oh no, 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 no we're no. getting better. We are we are just hitting our stride. It is Tuesday, January sixteenth, two thousand eighteen. Last week, Duke was on a bit of a slide, and when we recorded, we were lucky enough to be joined by Kenny Denard, former Blue Devil, uh, longtime Blue Devil Kenny Denard, who sort of lifted our spirits after a after a disheartening week. This week, uh, or at least since the last episode, Duke is on a three game winning streak. So, as you can hear from my co-hosts and for me i think we're in slightly better moods than we were last time so let's introduce everybody and then we will get to the games i am your host this week i am sam klein coming to you as i usually do from the mile high city denver colorado i am joined as usual by my co-hosts one in washington dc donald Wine. donald how did you enjoy your martin luther king jr holiday other than watching your blue devils beat your hurricanes well, Martin Luther King Day for me is a day of atonement. I like to take some time to reflect on the ideals and, and, and the values that Dr. King taught us. He's my favorite uh, icon, uh, living or dead. And and you, I think I take every day to kind of piece together something that he has done that can guide us. And I think he has a lot of teachings. So I definitely took some time for myself to do that and to kind of reflect on how I can be a better person, a better, better friend, a better son and an overall better person. Love it. And Damn, our that's other, a, that's kind of a mood kill. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that's good. I think, I think that was all positive. That's beautiful. It, it was very it's beautiful. Positive. It, it is beautiful, but we're kind of laughing and stuff. And suddenly Donald's well, like, I want to live my life like Dr. King. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, no, it, it, it's beautiful. And, and, and Dr. King, I would think, and Donald, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that we we should be mindful and all that, but that we should also be joyous. And absolutely. Um, so so here Big we time. are doing exactly that. Uh, and so my other co-host, who's already said plenty, and I'm sure we'll say a lot more, yes. is Jason Evans, and yes. he is in Atlanta. So Jason, hello. and by the way, by the way, I have a special connection to Dr. King because. He was born on January 15th, and I was born on January 15th. Hey, Jason I Evans, celebrate- it was your birthday yesterday. It was your birthday. It was. Yeah, Duke gave me a nice gift for my birthday. Uh, look, when, when the United States Congress said that they needed to make a holiday around the January 15th weekend, it was because 
Dr. Martin Luther King and Jason Evans were both born on that day. That's that's absolutely the we have a holiday because of me and, and MLK. That's and mostly know. and mostly the Reverend Dr. Dr. King. That's okay. Yes, mostly, but a little tiny, tiny bit, maybe me, maybe a little bit. Sure. Hey, you guys want to know what I did for my birthday? Yes, I do. So my son, um, his birthday is just a few days. My oldest son, Drew, his birthday is just a few days before mine. And so uh, he turned 21. So for my birthday and his birthday, we both together went to Atlantic City. I would have loved to have gone to Vegas, but he's in school. um, And so it was too hard to like swing a whole Vegas thing. So we went to Atlantic City and I, for my son's birthday and for my birthday, we gambled together. So there my son go. sits down. My son sits down at the blackjack table. He has never wagered a penny legally in his life until this moment. He puts down his five dollar wager at the five dollar blackjack table at at Bally's Wild West Casino in Atlantic City, and the very first hand he is dealt blackjack. And the very second hand he was also dealt blackjack. That's a lucky kid. I Yo, think they did call you guys buy any lottery tickets? Yeah. No, we probably should have bought a whole bunch of them. Just, but, just but, tell, just tell your son. You know, we haven't met yet, but when he gets rich, just tell him to remember me. You know, remember I was always nice to him. He can sponsor <laughs> the podcast. Absolutely, yes. we offer that. So he will not get rich off of gambling. By the end of the evening, he had lost 150 bucks. Uh, never mind. <laughs> strike, strike everything. Strike everything and, I just and, said. And he's, be, he's bad luck. I can't deal with it. I can't be around that. It should be noted. It should be noted for those who don't know Jason Evans as well. Jason Evans, in addition to being a prolific Duke basketball fan and film critic, is also, uh, I believe, a uh, a big gambling fan as well. Right. Right. So my son lost 150, but I made 250. So it was See, there, overall, there you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> So how much of that 150 was your 150? It was all mine. It was I'd, I'd staked him. I'd given him. I gave him my birthday gift to him. In addition to going to Atlantic City, was I gave him two hundred dollars to gamble with. You gave him some seed money. I got. I, I, I seeded him. Yes. <laughs> and 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 the seed is still a little tiny sapling at this point. <laughs> That's true. But 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 it's a it's a lifetime of of fun that he will enjoy with all the skills I'm sure that you're giving him. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. All right, let, let's talk about the games because uh, as, we, as we have said a couple times now, Duke had a, had a pretty nice week. We're all in a good mood. So Duke went 3-0 and since the last time we spoke. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we got – we didn't really get to preview the Miami game, which was kind of the, the most important one that happened. So I would say – and you guys can, can tell me if you disagree, although I don't think it's that hot of a take – that Duke's wins this week came in increasing importance. So first they beat Pittsburgh on the road, 87 to 52 up in Pittsburgh. Um, we, when we previewed this game last week, we decided that it wasn't going to be particularly challenging for the Blue Devils. Then they came home and beat a Wake Forest squad that hasn't had the best season, but they have a little bit of talent and, and it was a pretty convincing win going away 89 to 71. And then finally the biggest game of the week, Monday night, last night, Duke goes down to Coral Gables and beats a ranked Miami team. I think they were only ranked 25th, but they were ranked. They have a lot of talent. Duke beat them 83 to 75. And what has become the signature style of the Blue Devils, they came back from a 13-point deficit with like 12 minutes left in the second half and, and, and took the lead from Miami, didn't give it up once they got it back uh, with a few minutes left in the game. So I want to start... I guess with the starting with the easiest games, and then we'll 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 go to the more interesting ones. Donald, do you have 
Anything in particular you want to say about the Pittsburgh game? Did it just feel good to to blow a team out after a couple of close performances by the Blue Devils in, in conference play? Before we do that, I, I need to break protocol for a minute. I need to talk to my friends from the University of Miami real quick. Oh, yes, little, please, please do this. I have to do this because yesterday, uh, as you guys know, I was uh, not watching the second half live. I was going to watch it later. Um, because I was doing a live forum uh, and I was hosting something at the same time. And I had turned everything off and, and was going to go through my flow. And that was about when uh, Miami went up 14 points. And boy, did the text start rolling in from my Miami friends. They did, they, at that point, I didn't know anything about the score other than that we were leading by, I think, two at halftime. So I knew that. I had watched the first half. But I did not know anything else. So when they're texting me pictures from the game about how they're going to storm the court, about how they were kicking the, kicking the SHIT out of us, I was sitting there like, first of all, y'all have blown up my spot. Y'all have ruined the game for me because I was going to watch the second half and be surprised at this. And then all of a sudden, something happened. We came back and won. And that hopefully was a lesson learned to all of my friends out there who decided to gloat with about 14 minutes left or, or 10 minutes left to say that the game was over. Because when it comes to Duke basketball, when it comes to especially this team, if you've watched any college basketball this year, you should know that the game was not over at that point. And thank you to the Blue Devils for teaching my friends a most valuable lesson. Okay, so Donald isn't going to talk about it. <laughs> so I'll start with the pit thing. And, and, and we only need one of you to talk about it. So, so Jason, feel free. Okay, so the, the, probably the most interesting thing about the Pitt game was that Marvin Bagley actually struggled a little bit. <laughs> he, he, he didn't hit his free throws. It was the first game all year where Marvin Bagley didn't hit half of his shots. Um. Uh, which, which is kind of an amazing statistic, but the other wait, that, really wait, cool. Hold on, thing, hold on, hold on. Say that. Say that again. I believe I, I I wrote this down as a note. I think I checked it earlier. Someone go ahead and look at Marvin Bagley's game log and tell me if I'm wrong. I believe the pit game was the first game all year where Marvin Bagley failed to hit half of his shots from the That's field. That's insane. That is crazy. <laughs> It's crazy. I mean, he also, didn't he, he? He also set the the Duke single season double double record, right? During this stretch, uh, during yes. the stretch, but not not specifically in that in right. that game, not okay. in the pit game. So, uh, so uh, the thing about the pit game was, I mean, we came out, we we blew them out early. Like the, the game was, it was fifty to twenty four at halftime. How much is there to say about this game? Pit. So uh, Pitt is like Duke. And and those are words that you probably never heard th- thought you would hear me say. Pitt is like Duke in that they are also really, really, really young. They're playing like almost exclusively freshmen. But there's a difference between Duke's freshmen who are all going to be in the NBA next year and who are all really, really good basketball players with tremendous talent. And the Pitt freshmen who are probably going to stick around for four years. And in fact, even though they're starting now, if Pitt gets some decent players these guys are not going to be career starters i mean pitches they don't have the players to stay with they don't have the players to stay with anyone in the acc they they had lost every single acc game by at least double digits and they were down double digits to duke very quickly I, probably the you know i mentioned bagley but probably the most interesting thing in this game 
Justin Robinson, J-Rob, was the man from the field. He he got in the game early, not because it was a blowout, but because we were missing our other big men. And and Justin Robinson has played his way into being the third big man off the bench. I mean, that may not seem like a big deal, but it's kind of a big deal for a former walk-on. And um, he has great stroke from the outside. Justin Robinson is one of the better three-point shooters on this team. At least that's how it looks. And he he had a big game, 10 points against Pittsburgh. I mean, that's that's just great to see. I, you know, um, we out-rebounded Pitt, which isn't surprising. But, uh, you know, we had, we had been out-rebounded by NC State. And every game this year that Duke has lost, we have been out-rebounded. So I thought it was good for us to then get back to beating a team badly on the boards. And then the other stat that I really liked from the Pitt game was we had 21 assists on 34 made baskets and only six turnovers, 21 assists and six turnovers. I'll take that. It, there was just a huge, huge contrast, again, to that NC State game, where against NC State, everything we did was one-on-one. We did not have very many assists. We had a lot of turnovers. We had a terrible assist-to-turnover ratio uh, in the NC State game. <clears throat> and then in this Pitt game, it was the exact opposite. And I think it was just really good for the team to get back to knowing what they can be and not letting any funk um, linger after that NC State game. And, and and then the last thing about Pitt, um, I thought we really turned up our defensive intensity. Now, again, Pitt's bad, really bad. Um, and so turning up the defensive intensity against a really bad team, you know, doesn't necessarily mean a lot. But, uh, I mean, Duke, coming into the game, Duke was 106th in the nation in defensive efficiency, according to Ken Pomeroy, 106th. And after that game, we moved up to 91st. Now, 91st is still not where we need to be, but we were 106. We moved up to 91. Um, and our, our points per possession that we give up dropped below one point per possession, 1.0, um, which is a good, you know, you want to be below one point per possession defensively. Um, so I, I thought that it was a good harbinger of what was to come the rest of the week, the performance against Pitt, um, specifically. Uh, added defensive intensity a, a little more. It looked a little bit more like we had an idea of what we were doing on defense, which is really important and would really play a role later in the week. Spoiler yeah, and, alert. And, and I think that um, it's one thing for Duke to blow out a team like Evansville in Durham where you know the players play that game and I don't know that it gives them all that much confidence, emptying the bench and all that. I think having Justin Robinson able to play an effective 18 minutes against an ACC team, even if it's a bad ACC team, an ACC team, it just gives the team all that confidence to go into a game against a slightly tougher opponent like Wake Forest and think, all right, well, we we did it this week already against an ACC team. We can do it again. And Jason, you pointed out the, the defensive efficiency. I think that Duke's defensive efficiency ranking, uh, according to Ken Pomeroy, has risen every game after each game this week. So the Blue Devils are clearly showing some improvement. Donald, do you want to start us on the on the Wake Forest game? I, I don't know how much more we need to say about Pitt, but is there uh, is there something you want to tell us about about the Wake Forest game in Cameron? Yeah, w- real quickly though, I, I I want to point out that I don't know about you guys, but Grayson Allen looked like a chaperone when they lined up for the opening tip. J- Jason, you mentioned the the number of freshmen that were out there. He was literally the only non freshman on the court to start the game. It was five, it was nine freshmen and Grayson Allen. So 
shout out to him for being the chaperone of the starting lineups um, against Pitt. But for Wake, I I think I think you alluded to it, Sam. It was it was one of those games that we I thought we played very well, and you know it was kind of one of those games where it wasn't we weren't blowing anybody out of the water, but we were steadily pulling away, steadily you know playing you know good ball, and we kind of casually you know walked away from. Them. I thought we had some great great games. Uh, from a lot of people, including obviously Marvin Bagley. He had 30 points, 11 rebounds. I believe he's, uh, he had, that was his fifth, I want to say, a 30 point game this year. Um, Wendell Carter, 15 and 11. Alex O'Connell off the bench with 13 points and 13 key points. He really, you know, his, his energy was back. And that's what we want to see. Uh, you alluded to Justin Robinson. He, he only played four minutes against Wake. But what I like about his minutes, Think about when next time you see Justin Robinson play, take a look at how the bench reacts to him playing. And the reason why I say that is when he was a preferred walk on and was getting spot minutes and garbage time, anytime he did something that was good, the entire bench celebrated like we won the national championship, like we would do for any walk on who got in the game and did made a great play because they're not going to, as a walk on, you're not going to get that many opportunities. When he's on the court, they act, they treat him like he's a starter, like he's playing 20, 25 minutes a game. When he makes a good play, they react like Marvin Bagley made a good play. They react like, you know, Grayson Allen makes a good play. And I think that's telling of how they view him and how much they think they, they rely on him and, and how they how much they respect him and his game and how much they co- are confident in him. You know, their confidence in him is really, really good. And I'm I'm really proud to see his progression throughout the years to the point where you know, when he makes 10 points against uh, Pitt, you're like, yeah, he, he he had 10 points. He had a really good game. And when he only scores, for, when he only has four minutes against Wake Forest, you're like, huh, that's weird that he wasn't in the rotation that much. But when he's on the court, he looks to belong on the court. He knows what he's doing. And even when he doesn't have a, a really good game, he didn't have a great game against Wake. He's always doing the right things to be in the right place, to be on defense. And I really like that about the kid. It seems like he has come a long way, and in general, the bench has come a long way just in the start of ACC play. Not Justin Robinson, but I think Jordan Goldwire and Alex O'Connell, all of them look like ACC players at this point. And I think we can we can kind of distinguish the bench as you know the guys who look like they belong on the court in a competitive game, and the ones who don't. And I don't think I don't think I saw all any of those three being consistent minutes getters in ACC play. I know that Jason's a little bit higher on O'Connell, but I expected the bench to just be DeLaurier and Bolden. And and we didn't really talk much last week about the fact that Bolden was out and that DeLaurier was dealing with injuries. We haven't seen them in a little bit now. And I was really worried, actually, and didn't exactly get the chance to express it on the show that Duke was going to be really thin if, you know, you know, we know that Wendell Carter has struggled with with fouls, and he hasn't been able to play as many minutes as we would expect. And the the bench going into this little stretch seemed like it was going to be thin, and that really wasn't an issue at all for them. I mean, Justin Robinson, like you said, gave them good minutes. Uh, O'Connell has given good minutes, and Jordan Goldwire, and I think that's been really great. Jason, did you have anything else to add on the Wake game, um, in particular, anything about Duke's defensive evolve evolution? Um, going forward from from that game? Well, the Wake game was yet another game where 
uh, it looked like Duke turned up the defensive pressure and and was playing the kind of D that we that we really need them to play. It was, uh, as you pointed out earlier, it was another game where our defensive efficiency, according to Ken Pomeroy, um, improved on what it's been this season. And, uh, uh, you know, Sam, I know you mentioned when we were talking about what we were going to talk about on this podcast, maybe this is the moment to talk about it. There is, folks, if you have not read the Duke defense thread on the on the DBR, on the bulletin yes, board, yes, 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 yes. Um, take some time and read that thread. There are some folks putting in some real great work, doing research, looking at the numbers, looking at higher statistics and, and things like that, and, and examining Duke's uh, defensive efficiency. I think the Wake game <clears throat> was a really important moment because I think that was the game where we saw Duke really begin to commit to playing zone defense. Uh, Jeff Capel was the coach for the Wake game. Coach K was sick, and and uh, so he wasn't there. Now, I, I am not going to presume to say that Jeff Capel said, aha, I'm going to do something that Coach K doesn't want me to do. <clears throat> I am sure that they talk about what they want. You mean you game. mean like uh, you mean like burning Antonio Vrankovic's red shirt unnecessarily? <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Okay, yes, <laughs> harkening back to last year against Georgia Tech. Yes, we all remember. <laughs> that, was it last year? Or was um, it two, I thought it was two years ago. It was two years ago. Two years ago. It was. You're right. It was yeah. two years ago. Yeah. But he really. But, but well, it, it's true. He really likes Rankovic because he does play him a lot. I noticed that. Him. <laughs> he was the first person. He was the yeah. first big man off the bench against Wake Forest. I did notice that. But more importantly, Capel, uh, you know, and even though I think Coach K and Capel talked about, oh, we can play, you know, oh, you're allowed to play some zone, you're allowed to play some man, you know, I'm sure they discussed the game plan. There is no question in my mind that they played more zone against Wake than they would have if Coach K had been there. And the zone against Wake was really effective. It was tremendously effective. Uh, and, and you know we we they've been talking about it in this thread on the boards, but folks, if you if you go back and look at what our defensive, what we look like on defense against Wake Forest playing zone, and what we look like when we were playing man to man, because when we were playing man to man, Wake was fighting their way back into the game. They were getting to the hoop much easier than than we'd like. Uh, you know Crawford. Um, uh, I'm trying. Uh, who else was it? It was Crawford and oh and 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 Woods. Crawford and Woods were were both driving, you know, quite effectively against Duke, um, getting the kind of shots that they wanted, uh, you know, creating assists for guys when they were getting picked up. And Duke looked like they were in a little bit of trouble in this game. And we had a nice lead at halftime, but but Wake cut into that lead and it got to be closer. And then Duke went zone, and it changed the whole complexion of the game. And you know, we beat Wake by eighteen. I bet if you look at our, I don't know, I can't go back and track it myself. If you look at our plus minus playing man to man and playing zone, I bet you anything, we were, we were so much better playing zone against Wake. There's no question about that. I want to hit on one of the things, Sam, that you mentioned. Um, you, you, you mentioned a little bit about the bench. And, and I think the, the Wake game and the Pitt game, we, we saw the bench guys step up really, really well. Uh, and I want to talk about Alex O'Connell for a second. Um, uh, when, later in the podcast, when we get to Player of the Week, um, I will not be picking Alex O'Connell as my Player of the Week. But, but boy, I I came close to considering it because I just continue to think 
He is bringing um, really premium outside shooting. This guy is the best outside shooter on the team. He's hitting 54% of his threes. 54%. And I want to point out, it is not a small sample size. You may think, oh, this is a guy who doesn't play that much. Yeah, he's hitting 54% because he doesn't shoot that many of them. No, no. He's averaging almost two three-pointers a game. And when you consider the fact that he doesn't play a lot of minutes, two three-pointers a game, he's coming in the game, and the moment they hit him on the perimeter, he's firing. And he's hitting 54% of his threes. And, and I want to tell you how that translates. Shoot, being able to shoot those threes off the bench is is a really tough skill because you gotta you gotta be able to like be timed up and have the strength and be ready to do it. Being a being a three-point shooter off the bench is an underrated, really hard thing to do in basketball. Absolutely. Yeah. Dude yeah. is cold. He's cold when he comes in and he doesn't show it. You want a great stat on this season. Alex O'Connell has 89 total points scored on 53 field goal attempts. That's, that's pretty damn good. One, that's <laughs> 1.67 points per shot. That's, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. No team comes anywhere close to averaging 1.67 points per shot. Individuals don't come close to averaging 1.67 points per shot. We talked earlier about Marvin Bagley, who's a phenom, who's crazy, ridiculously good. The guy has hit more than half his shots in every game except one this year. And we marveled at that. Marvin Bagley, even though he hits shots at a crazy, absurd, ridiculous rate, is averaging only one, 1. 1.56 points per shot. Alex, but technically, we would rather have Alex O'Connell shooting the ball than Marvin Bagley. I mean, think about that. That's how well Alex O'Connell has shot the ball this season. And, although, and, although, yeah. I do have to ask, what do you think of his new haircut? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, see, yeah, now he, he got rid of, so it, it, he kind of had this, you know, cool matinee boy idol kind of thing. And now he looks like Eminem. And he totally ruined it. There is he nothing, looks, he look, there is nothing right? about that like haircut. Eminem? There is nothing about like that Eminem. haircut. No, there is nothing about that haircut that screams Eminem. Not, not a single iota of that haircut screams Eminem. Trust me. Oh, don't. you don't think so? Come on, no, man. He's like, it's a buzz. So. It's, it's short. It's short, but it's. Yeah, trust trust me on this one. Thing in the side, I don't know, man. I I I like his shooting. He's got, more, but... he's got more of a shag. Like I don't know who who did that, but he needs to go get the rest of his hair back. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully it, it works that back. way. I don't think it works that way. It yeah, can. it'll it'll grow back. It'll grow back. Anyway, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt that too long. But you, you I, I think you finished your thought there, right? I did. I did. My thought was Alex O'Connell shooting three pointers. This would be a good thing. I, I'll tell you something. So Alex O'Connell is probably the best three-point shooter on this team. I mean, certainly the stats bear that out, and we're not talking about a small sample size. Uh, is There's a decent argument that, that my boy J-Rob is the best three-point shooting big man on the team. He's up there. I wonder, you know, I wonder, Coach K loves the three. I, even once Delorier and Bolden come back, I, I think it is very possible you'll see J-Rob getting minutes anyway because he can stretch the D. Um, and Alex O'Connell, uh, you know, if, if Gary Trent doesn't continue to hit the way he's been hitting, and we'll talk about more about that in a little bit, um, I think Alex O'Connell has a, has a major role to play for this team, especially now that Grayson Allen can't shoot. Listen, I, I know that we have this tendency, and I'm going to do it, when we talk about how we want to see Duke teams change throughout the season or how we want to see them improve, we tend to gravitate back to 
whatever the last Duke team was that won the national championship. So like after 2010, for a few years, it was all, well, you know, why doesn't the team get more offensive rebounds and, and why don't they just lock everybody up on defense and, and not have like stars on defense, but why doesn't everybody just, you know, play 32nd possessions and, and get the ball back and be efficient. And then because we, because those teams didn't have Zubek. Right, exactly. And then and then after 2015, it was like, why don't we just out-athlete all of these teams? Well, because we don't have Justice Winslow every year, and we don't have leadership like Quinn Cook. However, that team relied, especially at the end of the season in the tournament, on the bench production, specifically from Grayson Allen, but also from other members of the team. Emil uh, Jefferson. Tomley, Emil Jefferson. Emil Jefferson had um, a, a quietly great tournament, and and folks may not remember – you know, in, in the glory that was us beating Wisconsin, ain't no way we come close to beating Wisconsin without without Emil Jefferson playing incredible defense on and, Frank. And I, I think I think, like I said before, coming into this season, I didn't see that kind of bench production being possible from this team. I mean, we know that Delorier and Bolden were both gonna be able to play a little bit, but we haven't seen them recently. I I think that we have the potential to have a bench like that going into the tournament with O'Connell, Robinson, and Goldwire. And, and Goldwire has looked also really strong. We, we don't get to talk too much about him because I think Duval has, been, has gotten even better um, the last few games. But, but Goldwire, in the, in the instances where Duval has to sit, Goldwire has been uh, a pretty adequate backup to him at the point guard position, as has Grayson Allen, who coming into the season, we all thought, no way he's going to play um, – play all that much point guard and it, it turns out actually he's he's been pretty good at that i want to get to the miami game before by, by, making wait, a by, by greater the way, point I, about him by what you were saying jason no, no, i i, I want to say I, so i commented to someone just the other day i was talking with a friend of mine and i said um this duke team you know i don't know how much K, coach k is going to use them uh but we're legitimately 10 deep i mean you just named 10 guys and there's no question that all 10 of them have shown they can play against quality opponents. Uh, and we, we just haven't had that at Duke. I can't remember. It's been a long, long time since Duke has had this kind of depth. I, you know, I haven't gone back and looked at the stats. I should probably go back and look um, you know, over the next several days and figure it out. Uh, like the 98 or 99 team went really, really deep. Like Taman Domzalski on the 99 team was like our 10th man. And he was, you know, that 99 team, we, we were bringing like, uh, we were bringing Nate James and I, I'm not, yeah, and Chris Burgess, um, and William Avery. Oh, no, I forget. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> this team this year is one of the deepest teams Duke has had in a decade or more. Um, if, if, and, if those guys, if those guys are all rotation ACC players, absolutely. And, and, and they are, but they are. Definitely, How can you say they aren't? And I we mean, definitely didn't see that coming. I think that's the that's the greater point here. Yes, no question about it. No question. Hey, about let, it. let's talk about the Miami game because yes. I think, like like I said at the top, that was the most important one of the week. It was certainly Duke's toughest game. They were on the road in Coral Gables, where they hadn't won in a few years, and is a place that normally gives Duke fits. Uh, Jim Laranega's team always seems to seems to know how to how to push Duke's buttons, and and like we said in the opener. Duke was down by 13 with about 12 minutes left in the game and managed to come back. Like Donald, I left. I, I, I was watching the game live, and then at the 12-minute timeout, I had to run out for like an hour, 
came back home, didn't look at my phone the whole time, turned back on the the watch ESPN feed, put it right at the spot where I had turned it off and then watched to the end and was thinking like, oh, I'm just going to see them, you know, you know, lose this game because they had been the beginning of the second half was was not so strong. They were letting Miami get easy buckets and fast breaks and not making any stops and 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 the offense had slowed to a total crawl and I turned it on and it, it was still a few minutes of that but not long after I turned it on was when that when the comeback started and slowly duke is creeping up they're making a lot of defensive stops Gary Trent starts hitting every three-pointer like he's Mike Dunleavy in the national championship game I mean I don't know where who you want to start with Donald Tell me your impressions of the Miami game watching it as you did, like you said, um, sort of after the fact, but still as if you were watching it live. Again, you know, the the team that we saw in Portland uh, that played Portland State, Texas, and Florida, that comeback team, that's the team that showed up in the second half against Miami. And it was it was nice to see the the fact that it, and it was so fast to me you know it, we're it was about what seven minutes left the under eight timeout we were down 14 and then all of a sudden we were up two and it was one of those things where when I was watching the game I didn't like I, I couldn't wrap my head around it it was by the time I was like wow we're really about to take the lead we had and I'm so proud of how they battled back that is a tough tough road venue for Duke I think they've won three before last night. Miami had won three of their last four at home against Duke. And I believe they've won uh, like five of the last seven uh, under Laraniega. So that is a tough place to play for us. And they, their fans get up for it. Their team gets up for it. And because of some of their length, they match up well uh, with, with Duke teams in the past and especially last night. But for us to battle back and do that, I thought was tremendous. Wendell Carter, in the last like five minutes of the game, oh boy, like that dude rocked. Uh, I I mean, Jason, let's talk about that that block that he had. What was it? We're uh, 68, 65. Let's talk about the levitation on that, please. 68 to so. Oh my God, yeah. So Wendell Carter had three blocks in the in between the six minute mark and like the one minute mark. But but of one game. of them was a total superhero move. <laughs> one of them was yes. No, no, no. So the score, hold it. The score ahead, is sixty six to sixty four. Um, Duke has fought all the way back to only be down two points. We fought back because we're playing zone, and they they keep on trying to shoot over the zone, and they can't hit anything shooting over it. And which so, is exactly which is exactly the point of zone defense is to make teams yes, shoot yes. uncomfortable triple shots and and Miami had no they had no plan for moving the ball in and out of the zone which is really the way you want to beat it so they they work the they finally get the ball to Bruce Brown in the middle he's their star i mean this is the guy who's going to go pro from this Miami team the nba's watching him there were nba scouts out there last night watching Bruce Brown play basketball and and he had a terrible game uh <laughs> Um, they get it to him at the foul line and he turns and takes the ball at the hoop. And this is what Bruce Brown does. He slams on you. He dunks on you. He makes you look foolish. And Wendell Carter goes up with both hands and says, the ball is mine. It's what, that was such a man block shot. The the best thing about it. We immediately go down, we score. And, and at that, you were like, game over, game over. 
Game over. You well, and, 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 and Carter scored the basket on the other end, I think. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yes, you he have did. to retire when, it, when something like that happens to you. Like, <laughs> thing, Bruce Brown has to retire. The thing, about that, the thing about that move is that Carter was so nonchalant about yes. going up with two hands. It was like, it was a perfect example. I mean, if you, are, if you are an aspiring big man, that is a great uh, piece of, of film to watch to demonstrate verticality and just how to go up to, to, to get that block. He went straight up with two hands, took the ball right out of Brown's shot, and then just brought it down like it was no big deal. And he didn't even, like, he, he could have taken half a second to look at Brown if he had wanted to. And if he had, I, I don't think Wendell Carter has, has that kind of meanness in him, or at least we haven't seen it yet this year. If he had felt like giving Brown just a half second, like, Yo, I just did that to you, Sam. That would have I'll been. Tell you, it would have been <laughs> I'll tell you exactly. It would have been but, so appropriate, but he, but he didn't. He just gave it right back to Duval, ran straight down the court, and and eventually the the ball came back to him uh, for the layup that that tied the game. I will tell you exactly what I thought when that happened. I was telling Jason earlier, like when it when he went up, it wasn't. I wasn't watching in slow motion, but it looked like slow motion, and it looked exactly like the David Chappelle skit. Of Prince playing basketball, it was exactly <laughs> that's exactly what he did. He literally went up, grabbed the ball, and he and he levitated, slowly, drifted slowly down. just looked down, had the ball in his hands, looked down, looked back at the camera, looked down again, and just slowly and, drifted back down to earth like the god that he is. And then he and then he served Bruce Brown pancakes, pancakes right? with gravy. <laughs> <laughs> that it was Donald. That perfect. is a, that is a completely apt description. And if anybody hasn't, I don't know how you haven't. If you are a, a basketball fan or a consumer of pop culture. If you have not seen the Dave Chappelle Prince skit, um, I, I know it's on YouTube because I watched it recently. Um, you got to look that up and, and appreciate the reference that Donald just made. Well, you saw it last night if you watched the game. His name well, is yeah, Wendell but, Carter. But, but if, if you want, <laughs> if you want to see if you want to see Dave Chappelle's interpretation of Wendell Carter from like 15 years ago, it is it is on YouTube for your viewing pleasure. Jason, I'm going to toss it back to you to kind of give your overall impressions of the game because we kind of fast forwarded to the end a little bit there but I wanted to go back and talk about something Donald mentioned how Duke sort of did their their comeback thing again in this game the same way that they did in all the games in Portland back in November and I wanted to highlight a, a fun article that I read today it was a quick read from Matt Norlander at CBS but he has dubbed that version of the team he calls them zombie Duke and I'll, I'll read a paragraph from the article, and I'll link to it in the post so folks can click on it. But he says, Zombie Duke is the best team in the country. Zombie Duke is the squad that has the near inexplicable ability to rally from almost any second-half deficit. Duke is fallible. Zombie Duke is fatal. And yet, they're one and the same. It's only when you've played Duke into a hole that you make yourself vulnerable that you bring about the darker, desperate, dominant side of Duke. So... That's kind of the article. That's but, awesome. But you can read the whole thing. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was really fun. Zombie That's Duke. So he, he claims that the, the Duke has two identities. It was funny that the uh, uh, he was mentioned that because in soccer the term is you know uh, two a two nothing lead is the most dangerous lead in soccer. In hockey, you would say a three nothing lead is the most dangerous. The most dangerous lead is any lead where Duke is, is a down. twelve point lead against Duke. <laughs> twelve point lead against Duke left in the game with any with any time left in the game because. At any point, we can come back. Well, and 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 I think that we were talking about Carter's block. Carter's block is sort of like the perfect zombie move, right? Where he, where you think you you're going to be able to get around him, and then he 
somehow just overpowers you. That is that is some classic zombie stuff. So, Jason, um, now that I've gotten my uh, zombie Duke commentary out of the way, uh, why don't you tell me your general impressions from the Miami game? And feel free, I guess, to, to talk again about defense because, once again, down the stretch, defense was a big part of it, but also kind of about how the offense uh, sort of adjusted to Miami and and how the the comeback happened because it wasn't I don't think it was exactly Duke's normal mo Marvin Bagley wasn't featured as much we saw some of the other guys um, what was your take from the Miami game it's completely different from the other games in that it was not Marvin Bagley leading us back uh, we talked you know Wendell Carter played great especially you know, defensively, and he was getting tons of rebounds and um, contributing in a lot of different ways. But this this was the Gary Trent show to to a large extent. Uh, you know, it's sort of interesting. Um, uh, you know, it, it almost feels like there's been a flu bug going around. We know there's been a flu bug going around. It almost felt like maybe Marvin Bagley had a little bit of a flu bug. We we now know that he he popped his shoulder out at one point early in the game, and maybe that was it. But Bagley did not look like himself. Um, but Gary Trent, uh, Trevon Duval, and Wendell Carter carried us in this game the same way Grayson Allen carried us against Michigan State when Bagley got hurt. Uh, and, and it's really great to know that this team has these other options, um, you know, that, that, can, that can lead us and, and be dominant even when the best player in the nation, Marvin Bagley Jr., is, is not able to carry us. The remarkable thing to me about this game, guys, I'll ask you, what is my favorite statistic? Field goal attempts. Yes, field goal attempts. (laughs) My stat I love is field goal attempts. I would never have guessed that Duke could win a game where we were out field goal attempted the way we were in this game. Miami attempted 78 shots from the field. Duke only attempted 56 to win again, we won by eight in a game where we took 22 fewer shots than they did. And it wasn't because, look, we took more free throws than they did, but only 11 more. It's not like we took 30 free throws and they took two. Um, it, it's, and, it is and truly... We played, we played a fair amount of zone, which with one of the benefits of which is that there isn't as much fouling. Right, right, exactly. Uh, zone is why we won this game. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast so far. I'm going to continue to talk about it. We went zone early in the second, uh, well, you know, several minutes into the second half after Miami had started to get their lead, and and it befuddled them. They didn't know what to do. And we talked at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that coming into this week, Duke had been number 106, 106th in Ken Palm in defensive efficiency. And each game, we got a little bit better. After the Miami game, we're up to number 72. We've improved. In the span of one week, we went from the 106th best defense to the 72nd best defense. So I want you to think about how good we played on defense to move up in the rankings that fast. We had probably one of, for the past week, we've probably been one of the top 10 or 15 or 20 defenses in the entire NBA, uh, NCAA. And if Duke is playing defense that well, we know we're the – I mean, we've got an incredible offense. We're the number one offense in, in college basketball. Jason, I have uh, bad news. I know. We're number two. Villanova passes, we're number, didn't We're they? number two now. Yeah. Yeah. But regardless, we have a great, <laughs> incredible offense. 
if we're playing good defense the way we have the past several games, the way we did the second half against Miami, this Duke team is pretty much unbeatable. And guys, wait. So I got to tell you, you guys both mentioned it. You both mentioned how you had a weird sort of story about the way you watched this game. Oh, I got the weird story for you. So as I said, it was my birthday. And you might think for my birthday, I would get to watch the game. No, for my birthday, I went out to dinner. Um, so the game was on at, at 7, 7.30, whatever it was, dinner time. So I recorded the game and I, I turned off my phone. I was like, I'm not going to be interrupted. I'm not going to, I don't want to have anything about this game spoiled. Um, I, I went to a nice 6.30 dinner. The game actually started at 7.30, I think. Um, and, and so we were leaving the restaurant um, uh, and it was, uh, it was about 8.15, 8.30, somewhere in that kind of ballpark. Uh, and uh, I, I accidentally glanced up as we're leaving the restaurant and I see a television set. And the television set tells me that the score is Wake Forest, I'm sorry, is Miami 54, Duke 44. And I'm like, oh God, we're down by 10 points. Oh well. So I go home to watch the game and I watch it from the beginning, even though I know that at a certain point in the second half, it's going to be 54 to 44. Um, and I'm watching and I'm like, I keep on waiting for the, I'm like, oh, when, when's Duke going to stop scoring? You know, when are we going to get behind by a lot? And we get to halftime and we're leading at halftime and we have 42 points. And I'm like, maybe, maybe I saw the score wrong. Maybe, you know, maybe my eyes played a trick on me or something. And so then we score the very opening possession of the second half and we're leading 44 to 40. And I'm like, is Duke really about to not score for like the next 10 minutes? I'm like, there's, there's just no way we're, we're the best of offensive team in college basketball. I thought to myself, the score that I saw must have been wrong. There must have been some glitch. It must have been some weird thing I noticed. Maybe my eyes are playing tricks on me because now I'm 51 years old. And then Duke didn't score for eight minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. It was brutal. We were bad. We took poor shots. Uh, I thought Marvin Bagley especially was forcing a lot of the time. We kept on missing free throws. Bagley was missing free throws. Wendell Carter was missing free throws. And if when it finally got to be 54 to 44, I did not think Duke was going to win. I really didn't. But when we went zone, they stopped being able to score and we, and we fed off the energy from the defensive end and, uh, and, and we, we just turned it on and, and we turned it on because of Gary Trent. Gary Trent was the whole reason we won that game. Um, uh, his his three point shooting was absolutely incredible. Uh, if you will remember earlier in the season, this is a guy who was really struggling from long range. The uh, a friend of mine, Tom Bashir, Tom sent me an email, and he said that great uh, that Gary Trent's shooting percentage the first nine games of the season was twenty nine percent. He was fifteen for fifty one on three pointers, twenty nine percent. In the eight games since then, he's 30 for 61, 51%. So over his past eight games, he's hit more than half of his three-pointers. And needless to say, against Miami, he hit well over half of his three-pointers. He was uh, six of nine from three. He scored 30 points. We don't win that game without Gary Trent going off from long-distance range. Yeah, that was... Uh, yeah, easily Trent's best performance of the season. It's funny that that we talked about Marvin Bagley having a down game. He still had a double double. So, um, oh, oh, did you guys that, hear that, why he had a double double while it was only thirteen and twelve? 
Why is that? He popped his shoulder out when he had yeah, that injury. That's right. He dislocated that. his shoulder and came back in and played. <laughs> he popped it back in and played. Add to well, the legend. You know, <laughs> the, the, the guy, I mean, he, he, he's so incredible that he has a double-double, and everyone's like, oh, well, Marvin Bagley had a terrible game. Yeah, and uh, then he comes out and is like, well, I popped my shoulder back in. Everyone's well, like, popped wait, shoulder back in. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> I, I, I want to uh I want to close the Miami discussion here with uh, a, a, talking about a player who we haven't mentioned much because it I, I think it could seem, especially if you're just looking at stats, that Grayson Allen didn't have his best week as a blue devil. He certainly didn't shoot well. Um we, we all know that. We we know that he's struggled um with his shooting, but I wanted to offer kind of a kind of an optimistic take on on Grayson Allen's recent performance and the the comparison I want to make because of course we have to talk about previous national champions is that Grayson Allen is kind of having a repeat of Kyle Singler's senior year from 2011. Now we weren't doing the show back then. I was actually also a senior at Duke that year and Kyle Singler had kind of a weird senior year um wasn't as efficient on offense as he would have liked. He came back to school even though he had some interest in as a as a round NBA draft prospect the team had just won the championship and um, Kyle struggled a bit that season although he and Nolan Smith were the, were the two seniors on the team they were the two captains leading a team that you know featured Kyrie Irving at the beginning of the season and also um, guys like Seth Curry and and the Plumlee brothers and and sophomore Ryan Kelly and so Kyle wasn't necessarily the statistical leader of the team but he led that team sort of by example and in particular Duke fans love to reference how tough Kyle Singler was and I think that Grayson Allen perhaps against sort of his expectations for this season is is sort of filling that same job he is the lone upperclassman for Duke he plays almost every minute of the game unless he's in foul trouble and and he's he's displaying I think that same kind of toughness leadership that he has said in interviews he learned from Quinn Cook and I bet Quinn Cook would tell you that he learned it from from guys like Seth Curry who learned it from from Kyle Singler and uh you can see it especially in the Miami game where Allen was going after loose balls with like crazy um he had the one steal at the end of the first half against Miami that turned into a Gary Trent three that as Jason mentioned gave Duke the lead at halftime and although I heard Gary really Trent create... call back. By the way, I heard Gary Trent call back. Right, yeah, Gary Trent did call back. <laughs> and it, it didn't necessarily create momentum into the second half, but it was it was something. It, it felt like, you know, when when Duke is on the road in the ACC, it can feel like they can get underwater a, against a hostile crowd quickly. And Allen's steal and pass to Trent from the ground was huge. And then later in the game, during the comeback, he took a ball. I don't remember which of the Miami players it was, but he took a ball right out of the hands of one of the Miami perimeter players, brought it down the court quickly and slammed it emphatically in front of the raucous Miami crowd and, and silenced them. And, and that was, that's all Allen playing totally in control. He hasn't lost his composure through his shooting slump and, and through his offensive struggles. And I think that's a huge sign of maturity from him. And in particular, even if he's not the leading scorer, like we all thought he was going to be. And, and at this point, I mean, Marvin Bagley's the leading scorer of this team. The offense goes through him. If Grayson Allen's not going to be the leading scorer of this team, I think he can take solace in the fact that, A, he's providing a lot of leadership and uh, at, at both ends of the court in particular on defense. 
more importantly, though, as far as his future goes, uh, I think we we talk. I think we've talked every year about Grayson Allen leaving for the NBA, even after his freshman year where he didn't play much. We thought, oh well, he looked so good in March. Maybe he's going to leave along with the rest of his class who had all left, and he kept staying. And like Kyle Singler before him, I think his draft stock kind of went down every year. Singler, I think, was a first-round pick maybe after his freshman season, certainly after his sophomore and junior years, and then ended up being a second-round guy. Um, Allen might end up being the same, but he has shown NBA scouts, I think, that he has the ability to play with other with other more talented players, which is probably going to be the case when he's in the NBA. I don't think he has the the necessarily the size to to be the, the the top dog or even one of the two or three highest usage players on an NBA team, but he's showing that he can play with more talented guys and that he can be calm and composed and and also aggressive, which I think some people may have doubted from him coming into the season, giving all of his all of his you know supposed issues with uh, you know with his on court behavior and whatnot. I'll also point out that despite the fact that he's not playing as well like using the basic statistics um his usage is down but his efficiencies on um particularly in assists and steals um and turnovers are all better than they've than they've been in previous years where where he was getting a lot more of the attention so it the the trends for him are all positive other than that shooting percentage and i bet that that can come back to him i think that's something that he knows how to do and like luke Kennard's freshman year that sort of thing can recover. We've seen a lot of maturity out of Grayson Allen this year that doesn't necessarily show up in the box score, but if you're if you're really paying attention, I think you can see, and I think is a good sign for this team, even if he's not producing 20 points a game like we thought he would. Leaders learn how to impact the game, even if one area of their game is off, and that's what we're seeing Grayson Allen, uh, what, what he's been doing over the last couple of weeks. You know, with... He got 12 rebounds against Wake and eight assists, but only he didn't make a, a, a field goal. You know, but you wouldn't say that he had a terrible game because he may have had an off shooting night, but he's going to assert himself in one way or another in every single ball game. And, and that's what we're seeing him do. You know, uh, Sam, you mentioned it. I want to highlight it for folks. Uh, Grayson Allen this season is averaging a career high in steals. He's averaging a career high in assists. He's averaging a career low in turnovers. He's shooting 38.8% on his threes for the season, which is better than he did last year and better than he did as a freshman. It's not quite as good as he did uh, that fabulous sophomore campaign when, when he was you know, a first-team All-American. But uh, yeah, I mean, Allen is in a slump recently, but you're, you guys are absolutely right. He's finding other ways to lead this team, other ways to impact the game, um, you know, one really interesting stat about Allen is his free throw attempts are way down. He's averaging less than three free throw attempts per game. This is a guy, as a sophomore, he went to the line seven times per game. And last year, he went to the line four and a half, almost five times per game. Um, so his free throw attempts are way down because he can't drive the lane nearly as much as he used to. With Bagley and Carter in there, there's just not room for Grayson Allen to get into the paint the way he used to. And so he's had to adapt his play a little bit. Um, and I really wonder, 
I, I, I just think the, the, the three-point slump he's in, which is which that's the place that we're noticing it. Look, I mean, anyone who says that Grayson Allen isn't playing as well is really talking just about his three-pointers. Because over his past three games, Grayson Allen is three for 18. That's just a shade over 16%. Three for 18 from three. Um, my bet is you could put a blindfold on Grayson Allen and he could hit 16% of his three-pointers. Um, so I, I, I think that something's up. You know, Maybe he has a little touch of the flu or something like that, or he's just in a temporary slump. But everything we've seen from this guy that he's going to get back on track. And isn't that a scary prospect? The notion of Grayson Allen, again, being a guy who's hitting 40% of his threes, given what the rest of this Duke team does, it's just, ugh, if you're an opponent, you're terrified of that. Yeah, Although, I, I think I think smart coaches are going to realize that that this is a I it should be a temporary issue for Allen with the shooting. Look, no team's going to leave him alone out there. Uh, perhaps the more important three point thing that's happened the past three games this past week, uh, while Grayson Allen has been struggling, um, uh, I, I got an email from a friend who said, "Did Trevon Duval suddenly take over Grayson Allen's three point? Oh my gosh, touch? we didn't Yo, we didn't talk yeah. at all about Duval's." <laughs> Three-point shooting. Duval is six of eight from three the past three games. Six of eight, and he's hit some he had, big ones. He had he had one or two during the during the comeback that were just in rhythm and like totally normal. And and it was and, and I think the last one that he hit as it was going up, I was like, oh my gosh, I think Trayvon Duval is a is a three-point shooter now. And it was like it was like while the game was going on that I changed my opinion. We had to go back mentioned. To- we haven't mentioned his uh, – sorry, Donald, I'll get to you one second. We haven't mentioned Duval's name yet, but against Miami, he was our second leading scorer with 17 points. He scored the go-ahead basket, uh, and he had eight assists. The dude had a huge game. He was great. Yeah, it, to go back to the Chappelle skit, he literally – every time he shoots the ball, he's just like, good, because it's just going in every single time. And I, I really like how he's – evolved in that because before it was one of those things where if he got the ball in the perimeter with like 10 feet in front of clearance in front of him and he started to shoot everybody's like oh, maybe you should drive the ball instead and he's not doing that anymore he's shooting the ball with confidence and now they're starting to go in if we can get that con- to continue and get Grayson Allen back and then get these two guys back uh Delorier and Bolden from from injury oh boy we're gonna yeah. be okay Wait, Duval the wants way. to be Duval wants to be Kyrie Irving. He doesn't want to be Rajon Rondo. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> By the way, the the so Trevon Duval Duval still can't shoot free throws. Let, let's just be clear about that. <laughs> A lot of other things have come back. He's still struggling at the free throw line, but with 50 seconds left and Duke up six points, and he goes to the line for a one and one, and he misses it so badly. That, uh, do, do you, you guys saw this play. He misses the free throw so badly that he gets the rebound. And then he thinks he's going to get fouled. And so he put up, it was just, that was a crazy circus shot. Like back to the basket there, there's nothing but four Miami guys around him. He kind of tosses it up and it goes in. I was like, that's the, you know, he needs to just miss his free throws and get his own rebounds. Uh, It was, that was hysterical. That was awesome. Hey, let's, uh, let's move. We have, we have a couple other topics that we want to get to and, and also wrap up the show. And it's been a while. So, um, let's quickly discuss some NBA Duke related news. Um, the first item is, or I, I guess the main item is that Austin Rivers, former, former Duke Blue Devil Austin Rivers, 
um, nearly started a brawl after the game between the Clippers and the Rockets, and it was a game that he was in street clothes for. Donald, I know you were watching the game. What happened? So this game is, was the much-anticipated return of Chris Paul uh, to face the Clippers a, a, in Los Angeles for the first time since he got traded to Houston. And so as Houston clipped the Clippers, it was a really chippy game basically starting in this late in the second quarter on, but to, to make a, a long game shorter, the, the Clippers got into a couple of arguments with the Rockets and it was Blake Griffin that was jawing with uh, some guys. First, he jawed with uh, Mike D'Antoni, the coach of the Rockets. Then he jawed with Chris Paul a little bit, but not like in a in a bad way. He jawed with Trevor Ariza. Uh, but at the at towards the end of the game, about a minute left, the the Clippers are up big. They're about to win. He gets into it with Trevor Ariza, and and he goes back down the court, and then gets into basically gets between uh, him and Trevor Ariza. And you're thinking, okay, why why is Trevor Ariza and Blake Griffin fighting? Trevor Reese was not trying to get at Blake Griffin. He was trying to get at Austin Rivers, who was drawing at him from the sideline and almost instigated an entire brawl in the, at the end of the game. So Trevor Reese gets kicked out. Blake Griffin gets kicked out. Game ends. Everybody's like, okay, tempers flared. Nothing really happens. End of story, right? Wrong. This continued in the Clippers locker room after the game. And how did it happen? They sent Clint Capella from the Houston Rockets to knock on the front door of the Clippers locker room. A staff member opened the door, saw it was Clint Capella, got really confused about why he was at the front door and closed the door in his face. While he's doing that, Chris Paul, who remember knows every inch of the Staples Center. We find out that there is a secret trap door that connects the visitors locker room with the home team's locker room. And he escorted Chris Paul escorted Trevor Reza and three other guys into the Clippers locker room to confront and try and get at Austin Rivers. And as you guys just heard from Sam, he was in street clothes for this game and literally instituted, almost instigated a brawl in their own locker room after the game. It was incredible. There were so many layers to this onion that like you, I was about to go to bed. This game ended at 1.30 in the morning, and I'm about to go to bed, and then I get all this on Twitter. I was up to like 2.30 just reading all the takes on what happened. It was insane. You know, it's worth noting that there was some talk around the NBA that one of the reasons Chris Paul left the Clippers was because he wasn't a huge fan of the relationship between Austin Rivers and his dad, Doc Rivers, who's the coach of the Clippers. And that Chris Paul sort of doesn't like the Rivers family all that much. Uh, and what did, supposedly, what did, this, Paul, what did Chris Paul think was going to happen when he got to the locker room? He he said he was trying to hold him and James Harden were trying to hold back Trevor Ariza. But again, this is a secret trap door that connects the two. And the, the fact that the, the, here's the real thing about it. The fact that they sent not only did Trevor Ariza try to get in through this back door that Chris Paul showed him to, but they sent Clint Capella around to the front door as a diversion so that Trevor can try and get through the back. It's also Trevor. I mean, I, I don't know if Trevor Ariza is like secretly a hothead, but he's a veteran, right? He, he's not he's not known for for doing ridiculous stuff like this and he's been in the league for a long time yeah but but he was it was clear that he was trying to show us rivers 
that he was about that life last night. And, and I, I don't know what started it between the two of them, uh, but it was really funny because even on the court, you're like, yo, him and Blake Griffin are going at it. Blake Griffin has a little bit of a temper, but not too much. Uh, but just the fact that it, the whole time it was centered around Austin Rivers and Blake Griffin was just trying to divert all the attention to him. And then at the same time, Trevor Reese is trying to get into the locker room by sitting in Clint Capella to the front door and say, yeah, yeah, knock on the front door. We'll come in Trojan horse down the back. Like, incredible. I love it. I, so, love it. So wait, I, I wait. don't know how I feel about Austin Rivers, but I love the story. <laughs> uh, do you guys want to know why Trevor Ariza wanted Austin Rivers? Sure. Let's hear it. Go ahead. Okay. So people, if you have little children, cover their ears. There's about to be a little bit of swearing. So Trevor Ariza was in the hallway, like waiting for Blake Griffin after the game ended. Ariza was pissed off at Griffin. It had been chippy, like you guys said. And Austin Rivers spotted Trevor Ariza waiting around near the entrance to their locker room. And Austin Rivers said to Trevor Ariza and said, let his bitch ass come in here. We'll take care of him. And then <laughs> that's when Trevor Ariza what? said, he said, let his bitch ass come in here. That's what's being reported. And Trevor Ariza then said, oh, no, Austin, I'm coming for you. Um, and Man, so that doesn't, that, seem, that doesn't seem like a smart thing for Austin Rivers to do. Trevor Ariza is a, a big boy. I mean, Austin Rivers isn't yeah. small, but Trevor Ariza is 6'8", probably 260. He's a big dude. Trevor Reese was about to show him what time it was. He was heated last night. Jeez. Hey, uh, since since we're running long, let's move quickly to the other NBA story. Jason, I know you had some news about former Duke players signing contracts this week. Yes, so, so exciting. It's really, really cool. Uh, two, uh, two beloved former Dukies um, have been signed and will be making an NBA paycheck. Well, not quite a whole NBA paycheck. I'm talking about Emil Jefferson and MP3 Marshall Plumley. Uh, they both, uh, Monday, yesterday, my birthday, January 15th, was the last day that NBA teams could sign players to what's known as a two-way contract. A two-way contract means you are an employee, you're on the payroll, you're on the salary of the NBA team, but you're mostly playing for the G League team, G League, D League, you know, the, the NBA minor league team. But it's a big deal to be on a two-way contract. Teams can only sign two players to these two-way contracts. So it's, you know, it's, it means that the Minnesota Timberwolves, who signed Emile Jefferson, and the Milwaukee Bucks, who signed Marshall Plumlee, like those two players, like them a lot. And, and they, they see a role for those guys, you know, probably as a backup, probably as, a, a, you know, a, a, as an emergency fill-in if someone gets injured or something like that. But, you know, it means that both Emile Jefferson and Marshall Plumley will be making significantly more money than their other G League teammates, um, and it means that they're allowed to come up and play with the the big the big the big team, the the NBA team for around 22 games of the season. They're not allowed to play all the time, um, uh, and because they're both signed at midseason, they're not allowed. To, um, other G League players like Quinn Cook is on a two way contract. He's allowed to play up to 45 games with the uh, Golden State Warriors, because these guys were signed at midseason, they can't quite play 45. They can only play 22. But, but it, it's, a, it's a really good thing for uh, Emil Jefferson and MP3 to have these two-way deals. Um, like I said, it's a lot more money, and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm really pleased for them. They both worked very, very hard. Emil Jefferson is the guy who 
have you guys seen what his stats are like in the G League? Have you seen what Emil Jefferson's been doing down in the G League? No, no I haven't. What, what I haven't. So uh, Emil Jefferson's like one of the best players in the G League. He's averaging 18 points per game and 13 rebounds per game. Uh, he he routinely, I mean routinely, will go off for like 28 and 20. It is not uncommon to see him have a 20-20 game in the G League. Uh, he, None yeah. of this surprises me. No, but after, that's awesome. After the after the Lance Thomas uh, revelation. I, I just feel like Duke players who who show that kind of what, what Coach K likes to call the verve, um, those guys can succeed because they're just going to work harder. There are now, as we speak, there are 23, 23 former Blue Devils who are earning money from the NBA. That is really impressive. All right, let's uh, let, let's go to our normal closing segments. First, the player of the week, Donald, who is your player of the week? Uh, well, there's a lot of guys who could get player of the week and that had really good weeks. I'm going to go with Marvin Bagley. Uh, the dude is just unstoppable. Really, I, I think, you know, he had double doubles. He had a 30-point game. But really what set it off uh, or what tipped him for me is the fact that he did you know had a double double last night against Miami with a separated shoulder? Uh, I I don't know how you do that because I would be in severe pain. He was not. He he played like Marvin Bagley, and that's why he's my player of the week. All right, Jason. Uh, Gary Trent Jr. was uh, a paltry fourteen for twenty one on three pointers on the week. Fourteen for twenty one. 67 percent of his three pointers he hit. If he was shooting shots in the paint. That would be a good percentage. To be hitting 67% of his shots from all the way back in three-point land is crazy ridiculous. He averaged about 22 points per game. He absolutely, he shot Wake Forest out of the game. He shot Miami out of the game. Uh, He was fabulous. And by the way, an important note, I can't believe I didn't say this earlier about the Wake Forest game. Gary Trent Jr., when he wasn't raining three-pointers down on Wake Forest, was on the bench puking. The dude was quite literally throwing up on the bench because he had a fever. He had a he had the flu. We've talked about the flu a little bit. And he would puke, then he'd go in the game and rain down a couple three-pointers. Go back to the bench, puke a little bit more, go back in the game, rain down a couple more three-pointers. That is player of the week material. All right, I'm going to go with Wendell Carter. He had a few double-doubles, you know, whatever, and we already discussed it at length. But just to reiterate, the play that he had down the stretch uh, on defense against Miami, going up for the for the two handed block and steal was just outrageous. So for me, it's Wendell Carter Jr. Finally, let's do parting shots. Jason, I will start with you. Well, the parting shots may be a little bit voluminous. Um, I know the podcast is going long, so I'll try and set it up really quickly. JJ Redick had Kyrie Irving on his podcast this week. And J.J. Redick and Kyrie Irving didn't spend all that much time talking about the NBA. They spent a little bit of time talking about their time at Duke. They mostly talked about some crazy-ass conspiracies that they believe in. Just some weird, weird, wild, crazy stuff. Kyrie Irving, as most of you have probably heard, says that he believes the Earth is flat. He says that he's, he says that he's open to believing that the Earth is flat. It doesn't yeah. sound like he's fully convinced yet, but... 
it is disturbing nonetheless. Continue. J.J. Redick responded to that and said he kind of sort of thinks that maybe dinosaurs didn't exist. Uh, I, there are people who who think that that both these guys are trying of trolling all of us that they're they're just putting on an act that they're they're sort of laughing and snickering about this. That's me. But but you know even if they are, um, I'm really bothered by hey, Reddick went to Duke for four years. And do y'all know what his degree is in? He's a, he's a history major, isn't he? Yes, yes. J.J. Mm-hmm. Reddick has a degree from Duke, one of the finest institutions in the world not in that, history. Not that, not that we're going to make you know, any specific judgments about such a place. Yeah. He has a history degree from Duke, and he's out there telling people that he kind of sort of thinks maybe dinosaurs didn't exist. Even if he's kidding, you know, I, I'm laughing. This is funny. This is all kind of amusing. And, and it's entirely possible that these guys are trolling us. But you know what? Even if they are, I, I think it looks bad. I, I, I think it's not, it's not good for Duke's reputation. It's not good for their reputation. Um, I think it makes them look weird and silly and foolish. It makes it look a little bit like they didn't take their studies at Duke all that seriously. It makes it look like Duke didn't educate them as well as we should have. Um, look, it is easy. And Donald, I'm sure you're going to say, dude, deal with it. They're just kidding. This isn't real. I, I don't care whether it's real or not. I, I, I wish they would not do it because I, uh, again, I just, I don't think it makes them look good. I don't think it makes the NBA look good. It doesn't make basketball players look good. And it especially doesn't make the school that educated them, Duke university look good. Donald, do you want to respond to that? <laughs> uh, I mean, I can, I, I, I honestly, Really, I don't think it makes them look bad. I think here's the thing: it's getting them in the in the in the news for something other than basketball, and and some people can take concern in that. But I think that when you're talking about something like that, it's so outlandish that, like, first of all, I I don't believe that they. I I took history classes with JJ. I'm a history minor. There was no dinosaur history class. But having said that, I do believe that dinosaurs walk the earth, and I would love. I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan. I would love to have a Jurassic Park one day. I digress. I think that hold on, hold on. No, 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 no. You don't want to have a Jurassic Park. Yeah, I do. I don't want to go, but I want to. I want to see it happen. Oh, I want to go. I just don't want to go when the dinosaurs get out and eat the people. But I'll go to look at nah, them. See, I think see, that's, that's sort of you. Anyway, I'd be. I'd be running. <laughs> but yeah, no. I, I think. I think that it doesn't really. I don't think it paints Duke in a bad light. I don't think. Here's the thing: when people are clowning to me about uh, Kyrie and JJ. They're not clowning about our education. They're clowning. They're like, hey, what's up with your boy, JJ? What's up with your boy, Kyrie? But they're not saying, yo, your degree is terrible because you guys teach people to think that the world that the world is flat and that there are no dinosaurs because no one in their right mind actually believes that that's what's being taught here. And even even if they thought that Duke is taught to expand your horizons and to and to be able to whatever your position is on on anything in life to be able to back it up and. I- that that is that is something that when we're talking about this, no one is saying, no one is devaluing a Duke education because these guys are saying that. That's all I have to say. Yeah, look, I, I want to be clear. Um, I, I was not. I didn't mean to imply. I, I hope no one thought that I meant that. I thought that people would think that Duke had taught them that the Earth is flat or that dinosaurs didn't exist. I don't for a minute think that anyone's going to think that. What I think is possible is that people will think that athletes, that these guys who went to Duke didn't get a serious education. 
because someone with a serious education couldn't possibly believe these things. It very well may be that 90%, 95%, 99% of the people who hear this don't think that way and don't think about Duke that way. But if it's even 1%, I think that's unfortunate. I took Roxford Jocks at Duke, and I know we reviewed The Shape of the Earth, and we may have reviewed dinosaurs and, and fossils, but I can assure you that it is not in the curriculum what these guys are espousing. So I for anyone Roxford. who's listening, yeah. Um, also, I got an A minus. I'm pretty. It's like my my most embarrassing grade. At, I had worse grades at Duke in other classes, but I got an A minus in rocks, and I'm still embarrassed about it because <laughs> that class was too easy. Um, Donald, let's hear your parting shot. Well, if you guys have not seen ESPN yesterday, there was a great article um, about Marvin Bagley and his education. And uh, I won't get into the long and short of it. It's a long article. It talked a lot about his his upbringing, how he values his family, how close he is to his immediate family. But one nugget that they have is the fact that he was in a class um, that is taught by Grammy Award winning producer, hip hop producer, legend in the game. Ninth Wonder, who is a uh, a Durham native and also is a professor at Duke. And one of the classes that Bagley is taking, he is teaching himself how to kind of expand his horizons through the art of music. And he is rapping. And they they ESPN talks about how he was in the booth and Ninth Wonder is kind of coaching him through some lyrics. And he, he drops a couple lines. Uh, but what a nugget was at the end is him and a few former players are apparently putting together a short EP album that's going to be released in March, right before March Madness. So uh, I, I don't know how what to expect from that. We don't know who the players are that's on it, but for you hip-hop heads, maybe something to look forward to. And also, really, is going to have Ninth, Ninth Wonder producing it, so it's got to be to- it's got to be dope in some fashion. I, I bet it doesn't get released till after the NCAA tournament is over because – uh, Marvin, I think it'd be problematic for Marvin Bagley to make money off of off of a hip hop album while he's still playing basketball for Duke. Well, but Don, to clarify, Don, to clarify, I'm sorry, to clarify, extended plays EPs are traditionally what we've referred to as mixtapes. Mixtapes are not put out for commercial use; they're usually put out for free. Um, and this would be put out for free because extended plays are not normally ones that you sell for money. So we wouldn't have that that angle. Oh, okay, good. Uh, Donald, I I think the most important thing that needs to happen at this point, um, I I need to hear you do the lyrics that Marvin Marvin Bagley had some pretty, they they were cool lyrics in there, and I want to hear you. It's your hip-hop. Are you going to put me on the spot? Can you rap it for me? I don't don't like biting other guys' lyrics, but I'm going to read them uh, for the public out there. It's a little nugget, and you could go read the article at ESPN. Yo, yo, read, read them, read them with a little, you know, give it some beat to it, you know. I give a little flair. All right, you should get to know me. I'll be around for good. Oh no! Okay, we'll keep going. I'm, I'm, I, I I am uncomfortable with all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Just want it known. You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save that because we have some things we we need to get, we need to get going. So I'm gonna say you guys can read that, Sam. Party shot. All right. My parting shot, and then we're going to get out of here. I, I think it's a take you guys are going to pretty much agree with, so I'll just give it to you straight. There was a little dust-up after the Texas Tech-West Virginia game the other day. Uh, the game was in Lubbock. Texas Tech took down West Virginia. Both teams, I believe, were ranked in the top 10 at the time. But uh, Texas Tech won. Their fans rushed the court. 
even though they were a highly ranked team. So I, I don't know about that. But uh, what, what transpired wasn't so great. West Virginia forward West Harris uh, punched a Texas Tech fan. And it's not clear from the, from the videos that came out how much provoking or taunting was going on between the fans and the players. But the big issue here, and we've talked about this before, is the schools not having a good exit strategy for opposing players who are in these situations. And it's especially frustrating, I think, for us as Duke fans, because it seems like almost every time we lose on the road, perhaps outside of places like Chapel Hill, opposing fans rush the court and the players, depending on the shape of the arena, can be trapped um, on the court while the celebration's going on and, and they have to get extra security down there and the players are among the fans and who knows what kind of chaos is going on in there. Now, some leagues, uh, notably the SEC, and in this case, the Big 12 who, who administered the punishment on Texas Tech, will fine teams and schools for this kind of behavior, but it's not the case in the ACC, and it doesn't seem like the penalties are harsh enough that the schools bother stopping their fans from going on the field. I mean, if the, if the fine is like, I think the fine for Texas Tech was something like $25,000, which is nothing for a Big 12 team. And if the, you know, if the school decides that it's worth the publicity and it's worth the enthusiasm for the fans, they're, they're going to pay that fine. Um, I think the concern is over the security. And I really, I really wonder if it's going to take something worse than this for real changes to be made, because it does seem like not just that the players aren't safe, because for the most part, the players are athletic guys who can handle themselves. It's where they get in these situations where it's a lot of students who are who are really excited and are and and have been taunting the other team probably the whole game because that's that's what fans do um, when they get in those confrontations with the players. I just I feel like something really bad is going to happen, and this was kind of a minor example of it. So hopefully the conferences or the NCAA take maybe a closer look at this whole situation and institute better restrictions on access to the playing surface. And if the fans want to get on the court, I think it's fine. They just have to make sure that, that the opposing team is able to get off the court in an orderly and timely manner um, to prevent those kinds of interactions in the future. So, I mean, so sorry for the, yeah. So there is, there is a, uh, an aspect of this that really, really bothers me with this specific incident. Wesley Harris of West Virginia, the guy who hit the fan was, reprimanded by the big 12. I don't know what reprimanded, I know what reprimanded means, but in terms of consequences, there, there are no consequences to a reprimand. It means, oh, don't you do that, you bad boy, and they wave their finger at him. I think Wesley Harris should have been suspended from at least one game, maybe more. Wesley Harris, uh, you, you, Sam, you're correct that Texas Tech was under an obligation to protect the West Virginia players and allow them to leave the court in a safe kind of way. But Wesley Harris almost created an incredibly dangerous, terrifying situation by what he did. The, if you watch the video of the incident, this fan who's part of a large group of fans you know, rushing onto the floor um, bumps into Wesley Harris, not super hard. It's not like he knocked him over or anything like that. And I, look, it's impossible to know if the fan may have been saying something to Harris as they bumped into each other or something like that. They really, they, they sort of bump shoulders. It's not like a, a full on like bump right into you 
you know, right into the front of you. But it looked to me like the fan wasn't doing much more than just trying to follow a bunch of other folks and and get to where he was going. And he sort of accidentally bumped into a, a very large... Wesley Harris is a big guy. He's a basketball player. I don't think this fan was trying to do anything. And Wesley Harris just socked the guy in the face. He punched him. And thank God the Texas... Thank God that fan and the other Texas Tech fans didn't turn and attack Wesley Harris. There was a non-zero chance that Wesley Harris almost started a riot that could have resulted in a lot of West Virginia players getting badly, badly hurt. And for the Big 12's response to be that they only reprimanded Wesley Harris is wrong. Players... I, 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 think, that, I think that on both sides, that what the Big 12's punishment is shows that they only... That, that they don't really care about what happened and that they're okay with it happening again. It's dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. Players need to be held responsible and arenas need to be held responsible. Fans need to be held responsible too. Although, again, in this case, I don't think the fan did anything wrong um, other than got a little tiny bit too close when he was running, which is you know hard to control. But there, I can't believe there are no consequences on Wesley Harris. If if they'd been in a bar, that fan would have turned around and probably gotten into a fight with Wesley Harris. And there were 5,000 people behind that fan who probably would have been willing to get into a fight with him, you know, to join in that fight. Can you imagine if, if a bunch of that fan's friends had turned on Wesley Harris? Yeah, there they, could they, have been it, a riot. It, it would have been really bad. So well, let's put it this way. If, if, and and it, there's a lot of layers to this as well, but you know, after the game, a lot of guys were talking and the general consensus was this. If that had occurred in the stands, the players would have been suspended for life, right? Like they're not allowed to go into the stands after player, after fans. And they yep. basically said fans should not be able to do that uh, to, to storm a court. And it, here's the thing. Not only does that things like that can happen, you get the opposite effect. Take, for example, when we lost to NC State and they rushed the court Coach K basically said, okay, with about five seconds left, he pulled all his players off, went over to shake, uh, shake Coach's hand and said, hey, we're going to remove our players so that you guys can have your fun, which is, which is an okay thing to do. I mean, it's, it's, it sucks that they have to kind of plan that thing. But people, some people had the audacity to say that Coach K was disrespectful to NC State by not staying on the court and not shaking the hands of the, of the players. And, and so you have this little layer. So at the end of the day, Fans should stay in the stands. Players should stay in the court. And there shouldn't have to be this sort of legislation about when it's okay for people to rush to court, when it's okay for people to not rush to court. Just keep everybody in the stands, and that way we won't have any of these issues. All right. Now that we have finished one of our happiest podcasts with such, with such a downer issue, um, <laughs> we, will, we will close for this week. Uh, before we go, don't forget, if you love the show, you can subscribe on iTunes or Google or Stitcher or SoundCloud, anywhere that you get podcasts, um, and feel free to leave us a five-star review at any of those places. If you don't like the podcast or if you have any complaints and don't feel like leaving a five-star review, please feel free to email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We'll take any comments, questions um, there or in the message thread on the DBR forums that we always post um, for each of these episodes. That's at forums.dukebasketballreport.com. Like we mentioned, 
earlier in the show. There's a great thread up there right now that's been going on all season tracking Duke's defense that has been really insightful. I think that's just one really great example of all the good discussion that goes on on the DBR forum. And if you want to sponsor a show like our friends at Bird Campbell, please email us also at dbrpodcast at gmail.com and we will set up those sponsorships for you. So for Donald Wine and Jason Evans, I'm Sam Klein, Duke Band. Take us home. <laughs>